The teaching for this evening is based on Psalm 129. This is God's word. A song of ascent. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So we're back in the Psalms this week. Uh, If you've been... Uh, If you're new or it's been a a few weeks, we've been working our way through a section of the Psalms. It's the hymn book of the people of God in the Old Testament. And um, we are camping out this fall in Psalms 120 to 134. And what ties this whole collection of Psalms together is the title, the Psalms of Ascent. And it's in all likelihood that these psalms would have been sung by God's people as they made their way to Jerusalem three times a year for the major uh, feast days where they celebrated God's salvation and his provision for his people. And it's in that way that these psalms taken together really do show us what is the, the life of faith all about? What's it like? How do you navigate it? What are its ups and downs? It's fits and starts, the realities of it. And uh, last, two weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 128. And one of the things we learned from Psalm 128 was that the life of faith is not boring, but it's full of blessing, of delight, of joy. And when we come, come to Psalm 129, we learn that the life of faith is not fragile, Look at verse 2. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. And yet when you look at Psalm 128 and 129 side by side, they're pretty different. Psalm 128 is full of blessing. Psalm 129 is full of affliction and suffering. And among many things we might comment or observe about that, what we're being shown just by the way that God and his providence has put this book together is that great blessing and great struggle and affliction exist side by side in a life of faith. Neither one cancels out the other. And what I want to do tonight as we take a look at this psalm is just begin by asking you a question. Have you ever been through an experience where you were you weren't sure if your faith would survive it. You ever been through an experience or a time in your life when you were not sure that your faith would survive it? Maybe it was a period of real wrestling and doubt and struggle and questioning. Maybe it was a time when you found yourself facing the loss of a loved one and couldn't possibly imagine how could God be God and this happen? 
or as we'll see from this psalm, you've experienced painful mistreatment at the hands of other people, particularly those who would find themselves at odds with who God is and at odds with God's people. It's what the Bible would call the world. If you have had any of those kinds of experiences or you've walked alongside someone who has, this this psalm is for you. And it's a psalm that's crucial for the life of faith because essentially what we're being told here is that Christian faith, biblical faith, outlasts the most painful experiences. That's what we're being told here. That God's promises, who He is, what He gives to His people, though undeserving, will see you through. It can outlast anything that this world can dish out. And so the question for us is, how is that possible? And so I want to look with you from this passage at three things tonight. How is that possible? We're going to see that the life of faith is dynamic, not static. I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. That the life of faith includes hatred. In particular, your hatred. And last, that the life of faith knows God is righteous. So first, let's look at this idea that the life of faith is dynamic and not static. How, how is that so? Uh, I want to give you an image to help get this point across. If, if any of you have ever uh, done any mountain climbing, you, you might have heard about there, there are two different kinds of mountain climbing ropes. There's a dynamic rope and a static rope. A static rope is usually used for rappelling from the top down of a mountain face. A dynamic rope, however, has elasticity to it. It's stretchy. And I want you to think about the life of faith like a dynamic climbing rope because a dynamic climbing rope is used when you're climbing up the face of a mountain and it's stretchy because it assumes you might fall. And if you fall, it will stretch with you under the weight and stress of falling. Whereas a dynamic, a, a, a static rope has no give. And when it comes under stress, it snaps. So I want you to think about this for a moment. What we're being told here, how is it possible that faith, life of faith, can outlast anything is you need to see how it is dynamic and not static. Notice, as we look at this, I just want to mention three brief things about how the life of faith is elastic. That it can handle the weight of your fall. It can handle the stress of the affliction and the mistreatment that you have experienced or you, in all likelihood, will experience if you haven't. And I just want to note as we jump into this that the context for this psalm is corporate. Listen how it begins. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And then the the psalmist says, let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. 
This is supposed to be a song that we sing as a body, as God's people. It's not less than individual, but it's much more than that. The idea here is the psalmist is giving God's people words to sing together in the midst of a world that is at odds with him. And if you look at the history of God's people from the earliest chapters of Genesis to the present day, this song gives us words as God's people to sing in the midst of mistreatment and affliction by those who really do not want or like what God is about. And it's important for us to notice that because this is a passage that's intended to give voice to a very real experience that I think may be pretty foreign to some of us, but in various parts of the world is a very real daily present reality for them. Now, let's look at this. How is is the life of faith dynamic? First of all, notice... It is dynamic because we face affliction as a community. In other words, you were not intended to face suffering and hardship alone. We do not experience hostility and mistreatment from the world alone. Why is that important to mention? Because when you or or I, or pockets of the church are under stress and experience hardship, you feel alone. You wonder, is anybody listening? Is anybody paying attention? Does anybody care? And here, we're being told in this psalm that you do not face the hostility of this world alone. It's Very much what Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he said that if one member suffers, all suffer together. So we don't face it alone. But secondly, how is the life of faith dynamic? It's by admitting the intensity of the affliction and pain. By admitting it. By calling it what it is. Listen to what we read here. Verse 1 and verse 2 repeat the same thing. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Here the idea of great, greatly is the amount. And from my youth describes the length of it. Here the the writer of the psalm is essentially in in a very short short number of, of words, small number of words, he's describing the whole history of Israel. The entire history of God's people is described as from my youth, in the earliest days, I have been greatly afflicted. And afflicted by what is referred to in verse 4 as the wicked. And then in verse 5, those who hate Zion. Now, think about this for a moment. The reason I mention this is that if you notice in verse 3, Here we get an image of this affliction. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. 
Here, God's people are likened to the dirt upon which the enemies of God's people run their plows over their backs. Now, this is a really vivid and grotesque picture. If you've ever seen an ox pull an ancient plow, it is a large, heavy, sharp, steel piece of equipment. It wouldn't just dig a deep uh, cut in somebody's flesh. It would, it would pretty much rent sunder you apart. This is a violent image. Here the psalmist is helping us to see the, di- the dynamic character of the life of faith is not afraid to admit the reality of the affliction. In other words, persevering faith never minimizes evil and wickedness. It never minimizes it. Have you ever said this to yourself, where perhaps you're in a hard situation or someone's done something to you that is really wrong, and and you find yourself thinking, well, it could be worse. Or you might find yourself saying, yeah, this is pretty hard, but I know that there are other people in the world who are experiencing worse than I am. Now, that's true. There is a place for that. But be careful. When you or someone else is experiencing real pain. Because essentially what you're doing, you're explaining it away. And when you're explaining it away, what you you are doing is essentially sealing yourself off from talking to God about that. You're essentially saying, what I am going through isn't a big enough deal to call it what it is. It almost reveals a sense of embarrassment about it. Or, I should be able to handle this. Or, it shouldn't be this hard for me. The Bible never deals with your pain that way. Ever. The Bible always, God always deals with you as you. Where you are right now today. Whatever kind of pain or uh, mistreatment or affliction you are going through. He never, ever asks you to explain it away. In fact, I would put it this way. He takes it probably more seriously than you do. That's what the cross of Jesus tells you. So it admits the intensity and the affliction of the pain, but also the dynamic of the life of faith reworks our expectations as God's people. Again, remember this little phrase, from my youth. It would be easy to run past this, but... One of the, the implications of that phrase is that pain and affliction is more the norm for God's people than the exception. And the fact that we here in the West experience relatively much less than many of our brothers and sisters around the world, both now as well as throughout history, is really the exception, not the norm. Which is why, for example, in 1 Peter, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So I want to ask you, how might these three things that you don't 
You don't suffer alone. That the life of faith uh, frees you to admit what's really going on and not to make light of it. And that the life of faith has its expectations reworked in light of God's word. How might that prepare you when you find yourself in situations in your life right here and now, especially when it's mistreatment or dismissal by friends or neighbors or coworkers or employers because of decisions that you make or values that you have as a follower of Jesus? Something for you to think about. So first, the life of faith is dynamic, not static. And that's just to give us an idea to think about that there is a genuine toughness to the Christian faith. It's not fragile. But there's also an uncomfortable honesty. And why is that? Because the life of faith includes hatred. Look at verses 5 to 8. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. What's all this about? This is an uncomfortable psalm. There are other psalms like this. But here the psalmist is essentially saying he's longing for the destruction of his enemies. He's, he's asking that they would be exposed, that they would be humiliated, that they would be like grass on a rooftop. Why, why the housetop or the rooftop? Um, used to be able, in, in the ancient Near East, the rooftops were flat. You could kind of grow things up there, but the grass would never get very deep because there wasn't ever much soil. So it would dry up and wither. It wasn't like it was planted in rich soil where it would put roots deep down and could withstand the hot, scorching sun. And here, the psalmist is longing for his enemies to be like this this grass that has no substance, no root. It just dries up, burns up, it goes away, and no one wants it. Not only that, in, in remarkable contrast to Psalm 128, here, the psalmist says, I don't want these people to ever experience God's blessing. This is as close as you can get to a prayer of cursing against your enemies. Now, what are you supposed to do with a psalm like this? There, there are uh, plenty of folks who would say, this, is, this proves why you can't think that the whole Bible is really God's word. And there are plenty of uh, commentators and, and Bible student scholars who kind of cut out some of these things. Eugene Peterson has a great uh, word for it, a psalmectomy. But here it is. It's in the Bible. And this is actually why we at Red Mountain do our best to to preach through books of the Bible or big sections of the Bible. That's why I don't tend to pick uh, individual passages every single week that that don't run together because this is a psalm I probably might not ever pick because it's very uncomfortable. There's a lot of hatred in here. But... Without psalms like this, we would never know 
how to talk to God about our hate. We would never know what to do with our righteous indignation, with your anger towards wrong and evil and wickedness. And what I want you to see here is that on the front of your bulletin, actually, there's a very, I think, thought-provoking quote. Um, I have to confess that reading um, Eugene Peterson on, on these psalms has been really helpful to me. And he describes the hatred here as an emotional link to the spirituality of evil. See, what's wrong in the world isn't things that, ju- that things just don't work like they should. There is a fundamental spiritual brokenness to things. See, persevering faith isn't apathetic. See, persevering faith hates what isn't right. Perseverance is not resignation. It is important for you to see these kinds of psalms as vital to the life of faith. Because while uncomfortable, the Bible is far more realistic about who you really are and who I really am than, than maybe we would like to admit. See, the Bible here knows that there is plenty to genuinely hate in the world. And in fact, when you see that hatred bubbling up, that actually is probably the first indication that you actually care. You know, if something happens to someone you love that shouldn't happen because someone else mistreated them and you don't respond in anger, something's wrong with you. You're not paying attention. And here, we are being given words with which to pray our hatred to God. Now, I know we don't talk like that very much. But let me ask you, without this, what do you do with your hatred? Because if we're all honest, it's there. And sometimes it bubbles over, and in fact, when you don't deal with that hatred, you actually become the very thing that you hate. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not saying that Psalm 129 or the Bible as a whole is legitimizing our hatred. What I am saying, though, is it's using our hatred. Listen to how, again, Eugene Peterson puts this. Human hate is not a very promising first step to the establishment of righteousness. Nevertheless, when prayed, they are steps, first steps into the presence of God where we learn that he, he has ways of dealing with what we bring him that are both other and better than what we had in mind. But until we are in prayer, we are not teachable. See, praying our hatred is the first steps to our release from it because it pulls us into a larger story. It pulls us into God's story. In other words, we're, we're not the only ones who respond to this affliction and pain. God is not powerless nor indifferent in the face of it. And the central verse of this whole psalm is verse 4 when it says, The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. 
Now, see, the life of faith knows that God is righteous. So the life of faith is dynamic, not static. The life of faith includes hatred, and it knows that God is righteous. This word here, translated righteous, is a a really rich term in the Bible. And it has an awful lot to do with relationship, being in right relationship with someone else. And what the psalmist is telling us here is that in the midst of all this affliction, he has discovered that the Lord is in a right relationship towards him, towards God's people. Now, what does that really mean? It means, a way to put it would be that he sticks with us. For God to be righteous towards his people means that he is committed to his people. That he will never back down or back off of his promises to his people. And that is true even when you might find yourself resonating with greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. It means that he sticks with us. It means that persevering faith is not the result of our commitment to God or our determination, but his faithfulness to us. And now how does he show us this righteousness, that he is righteous? It comes in verse 4 when he says, he has cut the cords of the wicked. Again, the context for these cords is the earlier passage, the earlier verse about the plowers plowing. Here the psalmist is giving us, with this image, this this picture of God cutting the leather straps tied to the oxen, pulling these plows over the backs of his people. What was once so painful and horrendous has now lost its power. It no longer has power and control over God's people. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment, especially if you are someone here who has a first-hand or very close-hand experience of mistreatment at the hands of other people. Unjustly, oppression, mistreatment, pain that's left its mark on you, and you still live with it. Here what you're being told is that the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Among the many things that tells you, it means that you are not alone in living with that pain. And in fact, what this tells you is no matter who has done whatever to you, that is not what most defines you now. To be a part of God's people means he is righteous towards you. He is faithful. He sticks with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. But it's really not until Jesus, the coming of Jesus and the good news of the gospel that we really see God's righteousness. And Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 3 when he says that 
now the the righteousness of God has appeared. That the law and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness. And this righteousness is not just an abstract idea. It's a person. It's the second person of the Trinity in the flesh. God's beloved Son. The one in whom He is well pleased. And what we discover about this righteousness of God towards us is that He identifies with our grief. He identifies with our grief. And He bears the penalty of wickedness Himself. Now what does that mean? That means to belong to Jesus, to belong to God, means when you go through pain and suffering, it is not punishment. Why? Because Jesus came to bear the penalty for all wickedness, for all sin. Listen, in Isaiah 53, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the righteousness of God. Breaking the cords of the wicked. Now, in order for that to really sink in, we have to begin to realize that we are the wicked too. That to be a member of God's people, oh, that's my alarm. I'm snoozing that one. Um, I'm almost done. Uh, That to be a member of God's people means you need rescue. It means you admit that you are wicked. That Jesus had to come and do for you what you could not do for yourself. Now, what are we, though, supposed to do about our hatred in this psalm? I want you to think about it this way. Like I said, this is not legitimizing it. This is not a a blank check to just cast down aspersion and and um, uh, hatred and condemnation on those who disagree with you or who you might consider as your enemies because the very first thing you begin to discover when Jesus shows up, he says, you've heard it said that you are to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for them. How can that happen? The only way that can happen is if the wounds of Jesus heal your heart. That's what Isaiah says. That's what Peter says. It's by his wounds that you are healed. Hatred is a wound. And there are so many ways that you can get that wound. But it has to be healed. 
And the only way that it can be healed is when you begin to see that on the cross, Jesus, a man dying for his enemies, prays for them. And you see yourself as the one being prayed for, the one being died for. And that is the only way that you will find your hatred that you pray transformed into love that you give. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that you would take psalms like this one and weave them into the language and fabric of our lives. I pray, Father, that they would give us uh, words that maybe are really unfamiliar, but in the midst of pain are just what we need because so often we don't know what to say or how to respond. And when we do speak and respond, it's usually terrible and, and can make things worse. Thank you for knowing us better than we know ourselves. Thank you for sending Jesus to suffer and to die so that the cords of of the wicked could be broken, that pain and affliction and suffering would find its termination in the cross, and that though we still experience it now, it will not have the last word. And we pray that you would heal us with the wounds of Jesus by your grace and for your glory, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.